Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. And that was the moment for me where I thought I should just go have business cards printed. I remember they were $180 for a thousand business cards and I was like, I'll never ever pass these out. Like, why would anyone need a thousand business cards? And I ordered the business cards from the little printing place and I went into my boss's office and I said, look, like, I, I don't want to do this anymore, but I don't want to burn any bridges with you. I'm going to be a designer. And she was like, okay, well, do you want to help me with my living room? And I was like, yeah, that'd be great. everyone i'm jamie i'm amy and this is clever you guys today on clever we're talking to interior designer nate burkus he started his design firm in chicago at the very young age of 24 and has pretty much been a household name since 2002 when he started doing home makeovers and making frequent appearances on the oprah winfrey show since his tenure on Oprah, he's gone on to host his own talk show, a show called American Dream Builders, and most recently, TLC's Nate and Jeremiah by Design with his husband, Jeremiah Brent. Add product design, executive producer, and author to his repertoire of talents. He's designed lines for Target, written two best-selling books, executive produced a Hollywood movie, and became a father. We're pretty convinced there's nothing he can't do. See what you think. Let's talk to Nate. My name is Nate Burkus. I'm an interior designer, television personality, television producer, and product designer. My headquarters are based still in Chicago, 22 years later almost, and I live full-time in Los Angeles, California. So paint the picture for me of what a young Nate Burkus was like. What was your childhood like? Where'd you grow up? What was your family dynamic? Uh, what kind of kid were you? So you have to picture a kid growing up in suburban Minneapolis with a incredible amount of hair product basically <laughs> every day. Um, truly to the point where I think I spent the first 15 years of my life making sure that no one touched my hair, which wouldn't have mattered anyway because it felt like a plastic helmet. But I grew up in suburban Minnesota, Minneapolis, in a town called Minnetonka, the son of an interior designer. So our home, our family home that my parents still own, was 
a lab. I would come home from school in the afternoon and find rooms re-wallpapered, different assignments for different spaces, bedrooms had been moved, bookshelves had, had been built. And I really grew up as a kid trailing my mom to estate sales and antique sales and fabric showrooms and things like that. But shockingly, it never occurred to me that design was what I should or wanted to go into when I was out of college. My dad was also a collector. My mom was really a collector of things, objects and pottery and frames and paintings and all of that. My father was also a collector, but on the absolute other end of the spectrum, he was the founder of the National Sports Collectors Convention, which started in Anaheim, California in 1980. And so between these two parents who divorced when I was 18 months old, I had the sort of collector's mentality. For my dad, it was baseball cards and sports memorabilia, but you approached it the same way. Where were you going to find that hidden collection? Who was going to have that property, so to speak, that no one had seen before. What could you get it for in terms of price-wise? What did you think it was going to be worth? And my mother was like that about vintage furniture and antiques and porcelain and all of that. So the education I think I had growing up was, one, was extremely experimental. You try and try and try until you get things right. And two, kind of searching the world, whether that for me at seven years old meant stopping at a garage sale on my way to the bus stop or hanging out with my mother on the weekends in small towns in rural Minnesota, you know, running through different antique malls and things like that. But I was always drawn to things and the stories that they hold. And I was always drawn and remain drawn to things that have a patina and have inherent sort of character, character that comes with things being time-worn and used and well-loved. And that's how I live today, surrounded by those things that tell a story 45 years later. Did you have any collections growing up when you were younger, like collecting, you know, baseball cards or, I mean, I used to collect stickers. Yeah, I, I collected stickers as well, but I, I collected decorative like objects. I was obsessed with like decorative boxes and I bought my first silver picture frame when I was probably 11 or 12 years old at, you know, not for a lot of money, but probably at a yard sale or something. The baseball cards and like memorabilia and garbage pail kids and all the trends that were going on back in the eighties when I was a kid, I wasn't interested in except in terms of their value what I could buy something or trade something or sell something so that I could buy something that I really wanted, like guest jeans, for example. <laughs> so let's bring it back to hair and designer jeans. Yeah. Wait, is there anything else to talk about? <laughs> <laughs> I can totally relate to expressing myself, finding my identity, and totally confusing and, and frustrating my parents through hair and fashion. And it sounds like you were pretty invested in your hair as well. I was invested in both of those things. In fact, my father <laughs> used to offer to take me to the iMagnin kids' department in California when I was growing up, because as I mentioned, they lived here on the West Coast, to buy me anything as long as I didn't wear whatever I had on at that present moment. <laughs> like I went through a breakdancing phase. I went through, I mean, my favorite outfit, can I describe it for you? Yes, back please. in the day? <laughs> it was gray Capizio dance shoes with plastic gray pants with zippers all over, a belt that had studs on it that wrapped around my waist twice, and a red mesh t-shirt. 
Oh, I know this outfit. I, I, it was like, it was merry-go-round. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, yeah. With a, that with was a my little jam. bit of chess king. <laughs> yeah, that was my jam. And then, like, just this big head with all this hair gelled. And that was, that was my look for, you know, I was very consistent for that six months of my life. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have parachute pants? Of course. I was a very much on the forefront of suburban Minneapolis fashion. <laughs> I feel comfortable admitting that openly. <laughs> so your creativity is expressing itself through collecting objects, um, finding things and trading things. Like there's a strategy developing yeah. here, but also in your outward expression of your hair, your fashion. Were you performing as well? I was, yeah, I was a, a little bit you know, in the theater and modeling and stuff like that when I was little. I would say looking back on the period, because my parents gave me my, my own bedroom when I was 13 years old, mm-hmm. and they let me, my mother let me decorate it within reason. And so I really picked, like, the wallpaper and the carpet and the color of the wood and, you know, all these things. And so looking back on that period now, my dad, who didn't understand why I was so interested in clothes and furniture and fashion and all this stuff, music, you know, they, they let me really be who I was from a very, very young age. And I think that that's such an incredible gift to give a kid to let them and allow them be free of your expectations in terms of what you want their personal interests to be and how they express that. Mm -hmm. It was such a great great gift that I was given from such an early age that, okay, great. Like you want to wear a red mesh t-shirt and spend your afternoon picking out wallpaper, go for it. You know, and it's hard, I think as a parent, because the biggest gift you can do is, is I think give a child the freedom and the space to be who they really are and, and express their, their true interests instead of, you know, they made me play t-ball and, and baseball and all of that stuff, which I hated. But I, you know, for the most part, they left, left me alone to do what I thought was cool. I don't have kids, but I can recognize my parents struggle with this, um, Allowing me the freedom of expression to be who I am, but then still trying to shape and guide me through things like team sports that that teach a lot of lessons. I hated team sports. Yeah, I did too. I hated direct sunlight. I hated standing on grass. I hated all of it. (laughs) I hated mosquitoes. I still hate all of those things, actually. Okay, let's move into your teenage years. Did you have any chapters of rebellion? Were you a perfect angel or a handsome devil? No, I got kicked out of the house and sent away to a boarding school in rural Massachusetts. So I definitely would classify that under not an angel. It turned out to be actually an an amazing experience for me because it was 1988-ish and it was, you know, I was so independent And by the time I got to college, because I had lived in a dorm and lived on my own and had free weekends to explore Boston and New York City, I was not really interested in drinking beer out of a hat and just like hanging out at bars. Like I, my education was earlier than that because I was sent away to, for, for part of high school. And I think, you know, looking back on that time too, I was definitely just trying to find myself in, in every way. And I was bored in Minnesota. There wasn't enough stimulation for me. I didn't feel a part of the world. I felt like I was not sequestered, but just kind of in this lovely town suburb 
doing all the things that kids typically do and not really that into it. I wanted to see stuff. I wanted to be in the middle of everything. So going away to boarding school was was your parents' way of... Not dealing with me. Not dealing with you. It was a little bit disciplinarian, but then it was also probably trying to find you some new horizons and some structure at the same time. I think they knew that. I think that they, you know, listen, there are a lot of options in that moment. I was very lucky and fortunate to have that Cushing Academy in Ashburnham, Massachusetts be the option that my parents decided on for me. Not every person has that opportunity, which I know well. But, you know, I've always felt like you have to make the best out of every situation and kind of reach and search for what the lesson is and what the silver lining is in any situation. Even at 16 or 17, it was still obvious to me that I, you know, was being given a gift. I just needed to figure out how to capitalize on that. It sounds like you had freedom and you were comfortable, you know, living away. So the transition to college must have been a lot easier. Um, And it doesn't sound like you were drinking and partying and going crazy in college. So what did you study and how did you navigate turning that into something post-grad? So college for me was really fun. I did drink. Let's not make any mistakes about that. Um, I definitely may have drank beer out of hats and things with funnels and things like that, which was great. I, I was thrown in jail in Highwood, Illinois for a fake ID. So I have proof that I was drinking. I, um, I only spent one night there though. It was, or like two hours there. My friend's father had to come pick me up. It was brutal. But, um, I was, you know, campus also started to feel small. I went to Lake Forest College on the North Shore of of Chicago, and it's a great school, liberal arts. I was fascinated with sociology, which I studied, and French. I did an exchange program and moved to Paris for nine months. That was one of the things, one of those pivotal moments in my little world that changed everything, because if I look at that experience from a design perspective, it was living amongst things that were older than anything that I had ever seen before. And the history and the building materials and the feeling of touching a doorknob every day that was 300 years old was not a sensation that I was familiar with. And I think that that living in, in France really informed a lot of my personal style and a lot of the style and decisions that I make not only for myself, but on behalf of other people in design. I left Paris, came back to Lake Forest College, beautiful, bucolic, wonderful, lovely campus, and again was like bored. And so I took an internship with a regional auction house in Chicago, um, Leslie Hyman Auctioneers, and worked there two days a week and did classes three days a week and actually lived downtown. So I thought I'm going to do the city experience and try and figure that out. I'll make the internship the priority and then make sure that I can stack all my classes in these three days. Oh, so did downtown Chicago feel small to you after living in Paris or did that start to feel a little bit like a turf you could own? It felt new. It didn't feel small. It all felt new. The thrift stores, the vintage stores, the the nightclubs, the furnishing my first apartment with my roommate who is an old friend from elementary school. We found each other again and lived together. You know, it was fun. It was definitely really fun. And I loved being in a working environment surrounded by such beautiful furniture and decoration and rugs and jewelry. You know, I definitely am somebody that is fed by the beauty in an object. And so being able to go to work every day, 
even as an, as an intern, you know, putting stickers on things in a basement, it wasn't lost on me that I was getting an education by surrounding myself with all of these beautiful things for the home. And I think, you know, that is the moment where I decided that design was what I really wanted to do. I wanted to craft these spaces. I wanted to change these spaces. I wanted to fill spaces with things in an interesting way, combined in a way that hopefully was fresh. And later, many, many years later, I connected filling these spaces with telling the stories of the people who live there. And that's, I think, when things really locked for me. Yeah, I can remember studying design and just feeling totally invigorated and enlivened by the idea of like influencing an atmosphere and shaping yeah. an environment. But that was all my personal expression. And I really wanted exactly. to put, yeah, put my thing out into the world. And then when I started really connecting with people, then I found like this superpower that we can have to help them access what is really meaningful to them and help them tell their stories through their spaces. And then you feel like, oh, wow, this is really the power of connection. This is this is super cool. That's the moment where you realize that design even though it could be classified as a frivolous, sort of expensive, somewhat trivial or light endeavor, actually isn't. Because you really are stepping into these people's lives and allowing them to be more of who they actually are and more who they aspire to be by crafting that environment around somebody else's story. So it's so interesting that you just described it that way because... That is that moment where you set down your ego in its entirety and really start to listen. And that, I think, is the distinction between somebody who's powerful and influential in design and as a person or somebody who's doing it for the money. Yes. Or somebody who's just really enamored of their own personal style and wants to spread it yeah. all over the world. And yeah, exactly. And you're like, that's so not interesting. Right. <laughs> right. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Clever is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. A recent episode took Brad to Venice, where he connected with Eve Ubelman, a partner whose company, Econem, has developed a game-changing technique for creating digital architectural models so comprehensive they've been dubbed twins. During the relative quiet of the pandemic, Eve and his team used drone-captured photography and powerful AI to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. 
On Tools and Weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, clever listeners, we're getting excited for New York Design Week in May. This year will be better than ever. ICFF, North America's leading platform for contemporary design, will take place from May 19th to the 21st at the Javits Center in New York City. I'll be there, and I'm excited to let you know how Clever is collaborating with ICFF for Launchpad at Wanted, formerly known as Wanted Design Manhattan, and the Emerging Designer Showcase. Launchpad is an international platform for emerging designers that introduces new concepts and showcases prototypes of furniture, home accessories, and lighting. It is the best place for manufacturers to meet new designers, discover fresh ideas, and potential products to develop. The best of Launchpad winners will be selected by a jury of renowned industry professionals, led by yours truly. And they will go on to be featured in another edition of the popular Emerging Designers Showcase. I'll be leading the Emerging Designers Showcase live on the talk's main stage, where the five Launchpad finalists will have a chance to present their projects to our esteemed panel of professionals. It's always a really good time. So mark your calendars for Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Both Launchpad and the Emerging Designer Showcase are presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Visit icff.com to learn more and register to attend. Those are the letters icff.com. Come by and say hi. I would love to see you there. Support for Clever comes from Wix Studio. Instead of reading you another, let's be honest, boring ad script, Wix Studio just sent me this wild-looking Alice in Wonderland-themed website to scroll through and tell you about. So, whoa. This is not the web I'm used to. There's something called Mouse Parallax, which makes it feel like you can go deeper into the screen. And as I scroll down, it's like I'm falling down the rabbit hole. And things are moving in depth and perspective. Even my cursor has morphed into a glowing little orb. There are all these no-code animations that make this place feel organic and alive. And Alice is wearing some pretty cool shoes, by the way. Okay, I know I'm mixing up my narratives now, but we are definitely not in Kansas anymore. Your turn to go down the rabbit hole. Build your next web project on Wix Studio, the platform for agencies and enterprises. So so you just highlighted the moment when you decided you wanted to pursue design professionally. And I know that you started Nate Burkus Associates at the very young age of 24. When you decided that you were going to open your own firm, looking back on it now, do you think that was a really gutsy move, a really naive move? Or... Let me set the scene for you at that exact moment. Okay. So I'm making $22,000 a year working every weekend for the auction house. And I am exhausted. And I am taking direction from all these different people. 
And by the time I quit the auction house, I was running a series of monthly auctions, selling kind of all the junk, all the inexpensive stuff that comes when a house has a really wonderful painting and the auction house wants to sell that painting. But in order to be, you know, sort of positioned as as the best in customer service, you also have to sell their gross striped sofa that has pet hair on it and everything else in the room. And so I was the guy that was responsible for selling everything else in the room. And they trained me to be an auctioneer and I loved it. And I would set up the exhibition space as beautifully as I could. I would get really bummed out when there would be like a plaid chair and I'd be like, Oh man, that's ruining my entire display in that room. (laughs) I would kind of shove the really offensive stuff in like a back room and sell it for 10 bucks. But The thing is, is that I realized at that age that I wanted my own freedom in terms of where I had to be and when I had to be there. And that became the central issue for me. I would have done anything in any industry if I could have figured out how to do that at that time where I didn't have to check in for an 8 a.m. Monday meeting. I just am terrible at that. And so, you know, what happened at the auction house was that because I was responsible for these monthly auctions, sometimes we'd have things that were more valuable than others. And Leslie Heinemann, my boss at the time, said a good auctioneer, a good business person, always knows before they put something out for sale who is likely going to buy it. And so I started going around to people's apartments and their homes in the Chicago area and saying, I have this amazing bookcase, you know, uh, can I come over? Because I know that you mentioned you were looking for a bookcase. Maybe we could move some of your furniture around or figure out where it could go in your home. And so I was doing all this sort of design work for free. And that was the moment for me where I thought I should just go have business cards printed. I remember they were $180 for a thousand business cards. And I was like, I'll never ever pass these out. Like why would anyone need a thousand business cards? And I ordered the business cards from the little printing place and I went into my boss's office and I said, look, like I, I don't want to do this anymore, but I don't want to burn any bridges with you. I'm going to be a designer. And she was like, okay, well, do you want to help me with my living room? And I was like, yeah, that'd be great. So we had this really great relationship and it was the first after my family and my, my mother's, both my stepmom and my mom, it was the first time professionally in life that a strong woman showed up behind me and believed in me and gave me an opportunity that was uh, pivotal for me. Oh, that's foreshadowing. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> um, so speaking of important women. Like if you guys didn't catch where that was going, I would that not only for you and your families, but your listeners as well. <laughs> we need to talk about. Podcast has to fold. This is not going to happen. <laughs> Oprah. We need to talk about Oprah. What? No, we were, we're going to talk about my swimming lessons. Um, yeah, so I met Oprah. I had had uh, my firm for six, seven years by the time she and I met. And, you know, Chicago back in the day when Harpo was Harpo and it was that building with bulletproof glass and gates and all of that stuff. You never met anyone that worked for Oprah. Like I was out, I was at restaurants, I was hanging out. I was a successful decorator, I thought. 
but I never crossed paths with anybody who was a producer at the show or worked for Oprah or knew Oprah. The closest you'd hear in Chicago, which is so weird to me now, knowing Oprah for 15 years, is that you'd be like, oh, I think I saw Oprah at Northern Trust Bank. And I'd be like, I'm pretty sure she doesn't go do her own banking, but okay. <laughs> so what happened was is that I had a space in Chicago where my offices were, and I decided to lease this space on the first floor of the River North District, which is where all the art galleries, or a lot of the art galleries were. And one of the, my clients knew Greg Lauren, Ralph Lauren's nephew, who's a fashion designer now, who was married to Elizabeth Berkeley, the actress, and he was classically trained as a painter. And they put us in touch and we did a show of his paintings in my space. And it was this wild, wild party. The photographer, Victor Skrbneski, was exhibiting next door. He locked his office and came over to join our party. And there were news cameras there. And it was just like this huge thing that we didn't anticipate. And somehow an Oprah producer who knew somebody who knew somebody was invited to the space and came to the show and to the opening. And that's how I met Oprah. That's how I was asked the very first time all these years ago to make over a small space in Boston. I did over 120 makeovers over the course of 12 years. Still worked every day with the same production team, basically, that I started with at, at Harpo. And I always knew as much fun as it was and as incredible as it was, it worked for me because I always knew two things. One, I have a terrible attention span. So I had been working on these homes and apartments and condos that took a year to complete or 18 months to complete. But on TV, you get everybody working through the night and you get to redo an entire space in three days. And it was like, this is amazing. Like my visual payoff, the payoff for me is so great. And now I get to move on. Like, this is so great. And the other aspect that I was very, very clear on was that I believed and conducted myself as if I was only as good as my last makeover, 110 makeovers in. So I didn't want to disappoint the audience. I didn't want to disappoint Oprah. I recognize that there's a lot of people out there that do what we do that I was given an opportunity to do what I love and share it with millions of people and actually connect about the power of design that we were talking about earlier mm -hmm. uh, to, to be that conduit to tell other people's stories through the choices that I helped them to make in their homes or made on their behalf. And I loved it. I loved every second of this was pre computers, pre internet. We had flip phones. We would, text like you know you hit a b c a a b b <laughs> yeah. trying to like send a message um my phone rang off the hook it, we had no idea what we were doing it was a blast and it lasted over 10 years and 11 years and it was a fantastic opportunity i didn't know when it started that it would catapult me into a different echelon i didn't know anything about licensing i didn't know anything about designing product i didn't know anything about publishing or producing or doing any of those things. But I'm a, I'm a pretty fast study and I was pretty strategic about what I said no to in terms of the opportunities that came from being on Oprah. And, you know, it's funny because I think a lot of people, when they look at my career, they think, wow, that was like an instant sort of meteoric rise. It wasn't. It was years and years and years of hard work and years of saying no to things and carefully saying yes to things and protecting my name and protecting my likeness and protecting my intention in all these different arenas. 
And as a result of that, you know, I am definitely living the life that I want because I got to sit in a studio and be around all of these people who are talking not only about design, but about love and mistakes and fear and joy and books and all these things. And that was a phenomenal, phenomenal period. Yeah. And I mean, that you just mentioned at the end is unintended consequence or the sidecar benefit of working with people who are so deeply invested in figuring out how to live your best life or how to conduct yourself in the way that it makes the maximum contribution to society without depleting yourself so that you're useless. Yeah, 100%. And what is it, what is it that really feeds you? Those are the questions that you know, Oprah asked of all of her viewers. You know, who are you really? What is really interesting to you? How do you celebrate that individuality? How do you celebrate that sexuality? How do you celebrate race? How do you celebrate literacy? How do you, you know, how do you celebrate seeing things from a different perspective? How can you be in that environment and not take away these incredible lessons that can inform every single thing that you do or help to inform, at least get you thinking about life in a different way? Career, yes, 100%, but that was never the gift of Oprah for me. The gift of Oprah was her friendship, her guidance, and teaching me how to ask questions of myself that made it easier for me to ask questions of others. Do you think that that environment was what helped you make these really strategic yeses and nos for your life? Because I know a lot of people sometimes agonize over those yeses and nos. Sometimes fear creeps in and kind of tries to run the show. If I had to say the central lesson that I took away from my time there, I would say that it was and Oprah used to say this all the time and still says this, we all have an inner voice. We all know instinctually what's right and what's wrong, not only in society, but for us personally. And, you know, we're all largely in our own way. It's a practice like meditation or yoga or healthy living or whatever it is, none of which I do, by the way, but <laughs> it's it practice to listen to yourself and really listen to your inner voice. So did that environment help me know what to say yes to and what to say no to? Absolutely. Did I do it perfectly? Of course not. Nobody does. But, you know, it was, it was for sure that, you know, if I had a nagging fear, I would really dig in and figure out why. Did I not like the company? Did I get a bad vibe from the, from the product? What was it that I was doing? Was that chapter not structured correctly? Did that room feel off? Um, you know, was I being used or in, in a great way where, you know, I could bring my skill set to a situation and make something better? Or was I being used so that somebody else could make money on something that I didn't believe in? And, you know, those are the things I think that for me, still to this day, I mean, you know, I'm super, super busy. I have a million things going on and a million new opportunities, I would say like on a weekly basis, but I still try and break that down into sort of bite-sized pieces that I can understand. And, you know, I'm also very good at delegating. I, I surround myself with people who I admire, who I trust implicitly. And those people have helped me make decisions because I'm not an expert in everything. I need to know, you know, whether or not somebody else has much more experience in a certain situation. I'm not afraid to bring them in, into something and say, you know, what do you think of this? Like, what does this look like? 
Yeah, that's a really good point. I feel like there are a lot of people out there that, you know, they like to be in charge of everything and kind of control everything very type A like myself. And then you realize you can't do everything and you have to find people that you can delegate to, but you really have to trust them to do their job. And, you know, there were times when I woke up at like five o'clock in the morning to get on the phone with my web server, you know, to find out why my website was down. And I realized like, oh, I'm going to have a baby. Maybe I don't need to be also on the phone with my web guys (laughs) while I'm nursing in the middle of the night. And so finding like the things that you can give to somebody else and trust them that they have really good skills in that area is incredibly important. Well, and the other thing is, too, is that here's the thing that that anyone's really saying. If I give this to you and you handle this on my behalf, I'm afraid you're not going to do it right. Or I'm afraid you're going to do it differently than I would. So you have to be okay with somebody doing it differently than you would, as long as the result is what you hoped to achieve. And you also have to be okay in terms of delegation with being really honest with whoever it is that you have around you. Because they need to feel like they can come to you at any moment and be like, I just made a mistake. I wrecked it. That was my fault. I didn't catch it. It didn't arrive in time. I should have. Or, you know, it was my bad judgment or whatever it is, because there's nothing that can't be undone. And so, you know, when you find yourself in that situation, it's the people who try and delegate, but then really micromanage because it's so fear-based that they're worried that that person is going to, you know, make a mistake. Guess what? They are. Everybody's mm-hmm. going to make a mistake. So are you like you're, you're, you're battling something that you're never going to win. Yeah. So the better way I think of going through life, especially if you want to focus on the things that you really love, like your baby and not your web server, you have to allow people to come at it their own way. And you have to allow the fact that life is really messy and there are going to be mistakes that you're going to have to help step in and correct. But the payoff is that you have a great relationship with someone. They enjoy working for you or with you. And furthermore, they know that it's a safe environment for them to be human. Yeah. No one's perfect. And you see that too. I mean, I think that's the super crucial thing you just mentioned. Creating a safe environment for somebody to be human paves the way for an effortless relationship. I love a relationship where I know that if I stick my foot in my mouth, that friend is going to come say, hey, that hurt my feelings. And I'm going to have an opportunity to correct what I said. Like, oh, that's, oh, I'm so glad you told me because I didn't mean it that way. Let me clarify. The only thing I ever want to hear is my mistake. I'm sorry. Here are a couple of solutions that I came up with. Yeah. That's my dream. (laughs) That's my dream scenario. It's not everything's fine. It's perfect. It's here. I screwed it up. I'm sorry. Would the other of these two solutions work? That's it. That's all you can ask for. I guess I want to know if you ever have had mistakes in judgment or you went with your gut and it was like the wrong decision and how you dealt with that. So I'm a really bad picker of people. I would say that that would be a consistent thing that I have to work on as a person. I always try and view people as they wish to be seen. I think that's a carryover of trying to get to know somebody quickly so that I can create a space on their behalf. And I think a good designer creates a space for not only who somebody is, but who they aspire and want to become. I tend to look at people, how they self-define and who they want to become. And that's not really always the case. So, you know, if I look back on the last 25 years of my life, I don't regret 
certain relationships and things because I definitely have, it sounds trite, but I really have learned from every person I've ever really interacted with on a significant level, but I'm learning. And Jeremiah, my husband is like, that person is a bad person who's motivated by garbage. Like they suck. And I'm like, no, they're so fun and nice. He's like, they're not nice. They're not fun. They're not anything. He's like, they're never coming over again. I'm like, Oh, okay. It's nice to have somebody in your life though, that like, like can see through, you know, your rose colored glasses and be like, yo, like this person is bad. I've never had that. It's fascinating. It's great. And he's not always right, by the way. He's just right 99% of the time. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like I have a little bit of that same plague. And I describe it as like, I just love everybody until they make it so hard to love them. (laughs) (laughs) And you like want to keep going. You want to like believe in that person like, oh, they can change. Oh, it'll be okay. And like, you're just like... Or I see that. I'm not, you know, like, I'm not, know I'm never changing like that. that. Yeah. yeah, I agree. I'm the same way. I'm never, I don't want to change that about myself. I want everybody to win. That's yeah. not a, you know, it's like, that's, I really do. I want everybody to win and get out of their own way and figure it out. I want to win and get out of my own way. I, why would I not want that for other people too? But I just think like, it's a, it's a funny thing because I've been on TV now for so long and been in the public now for so long. And I don't define myself as like famous per se. I define myself as like a son, a father, a husband, a friend, a boss, a you know, business owner, a person. And so I think sometimes what Jeremiah starts to sense, he's like, the only reason we're at dinner with them right now is because you have a line at Target. I'm like, is that really why? He's like, hundred percent. I'm like, wow, babe, that's really brutal. I thought it was because my hair looks so great and I'm so funny. I can promise you that has nothing to do with it. It's it's like you're a detective duo. It must be really great to have (laughs) have somebody who's so great at sniffing out clues right next to you. (laughs) Yeah, he's got he's got some clues in his pocket for sure. That's awesome. So speaking of Jeremiah, he's also a designer. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay, so let's delve into your creative process a bit because you do so many different things that are all creative. You have talked about really loving the pulling individual stories out of people and also objects that contain their own stories. And I like to draw, you know, the link between television show being a storytelling format and Mm -hmm. design also having stories in it. I'm wondering if you can kind of talk about your creative process and if there's any consistency in all these really diverse projects. I think the most consistent thing across all the categories that I work in is that I really do think people come first, then pets, then stuff. That said, I think it's so important to try and translate what somebody's either saying point blank or struggling to say or not saying at all and use that information to pour into the space for them. You know, I've spent almost 15 years holding somebody's hand while their eyes are closed and saying, open your eyes. And that is a moment that not a lot of people get to be that person with their eyes closed, but it's also a moment that not a lot of people get to be the person with their eyes open who just finished that project holding their hand and looking in anticipation of how this person's going to feel when they see it for the first time. And in that moment, it's never fake for me. It's never been redone. I've never, ever allowed a camera crew to to film a second reaction because the person's reaction wasn't good enough or TV enough. We always use the real reaction for all those years of Oprah, for our show on TLC, 
And the reason is, is that all of the effort, all of the care, all of the thought, all of the flowers cut a certain height and put in a vintage juice glass, the colors that we choose, everything leads up to that one moment. And you have that one moment to get it right. And so I would rather be honest about somebody's reaction if they didn't like something, which has happened, or create some interior that has nothing to do with the homeowner and just walk away like, wow, our job is done. So the creative process starts with sociology. It starts with anthropology. It starts with digging. Um, You know, we're not digging for dinosaur bones, but we're digging for different kinds of bones. We're digging for ethnicity and culture and what makes somebody feel sexy and cool or comfortable and calm. We're asking ourselves on a constant, constant basis with every single decision down to the color of the grout, is this what they would want? Is this what they would pick if they knew about it? And when we both agree, then we move forward with it. As a designer, do you feel like your success is when it's a good design in your eyes or it's good for TV ratings or if the people who have to live there really love it? Yeah, I mean, to be honest about that, that's a great question. The truth is all three. You know, I think it starts, the priority is that the people love it. Then that the fact that it connects with the audience and, and you know, people like watching it. Or, or like what we've done, you guys know just as well as I do that opinions are like assholes. I mean, everybody has one. So the truth is, is that not everybody's going to like that tile or that interior or that space with eight episodes of Nate and Jeremiah by design that we just wrapped season one on. Not every person loved everybody's home. And that's good. That means that we're actually doing something that is tailored to the people and their story who, you know, who actually live in the space. But, you know, I want everything to work. I want it to work for the people. I want it to work for me. I want to feel really good about it. Jeremiah and I drive ourselves insane, and I drive my Chicago and New York and L.A.-based teams insane about installations because, you know, I, I can't leave a room with a, with a towel folded incorrectly. Like, it's, that is like it, it, doesn't, it doesn't exist to me. And I'll never forget um, many, many years ago, I had the opportunity to do a, a project for Coretta Scott King in Atlanta. And I was there with my, my team and we were doing the installation over a week. And at the very end, when every single thing was done and everything looked beautiful, 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 photos and frames and fresh flowers and vases and new bars of soap and soap dishes and whatever, I opened the linen closet in the back hallway and saw that like there were like bags with towels in them with price tags on them. And I dumped the entire and linens and I dumped the entire thing on the floor, washed everything, cut off the price tags, folded everything exactly the same way and put it back. And it took two hours and it was already like one thirty in the morning. The idea of not going to those lengths on behalf of other people and for my own self-worth doesn't exist to me. I don't understand how somebody could be like, oh, you know, you've been hired to do something and that picture frame has the photo that it came with. It's like, what? No, somebody get to, somebody get, somebody get to a drugstore and make a copy of a family photo and, mm-hmm. and let's do it stat. You said earlier you were really good at delegating, and that seems like a good <laughs> job to delegate to someone. Right. I'm joking. <laughs> well, here's the reason I didn't delegate it. That was also like a bit of a teachable moment because I have three people standing with me who it's late. We've worked all week on this installation, 
And it's my own insanity that wants that linen closet put yeah. back the way it yeah. should be. So I would never do that to my staff to say to them, you know, I want it this way. So I'm just going to leave and go get, you know, a pedicure. And when I come and send me a photo of it, like, it's, you know, I, 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 I do as the business owner and as the name have to lead by example. There are a lot of things, by the way, that I will not do, but, you know, especially at this point. So I'm not trying to pretend I'm a saint here. But that was one of those moments where I couldn't leave everybody there dealing with my my own Virgo mental state. <laughs> oh, you're a Virgo. Oh, yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Doesn't it, though? Yes. Yes. It's really brutal. <laughs> You've done a, like a ton of makeovers. Has there ever been one that you did where you learned from the homeowners? Everyone. You know, I learned something from every different person that I work with, whether it's what their priorities are or how they communicate which hopefully makes me better at communicating. I like the challenges of it. I had actually, when I had my talk show, we had a bedroom makeover for a woman in New Jersey. I'll never forget. And, you know, we were working so quickly at that time. We were on television five days a week. And these makeovers had to be squeezed into a production schedule outside of that because I also had to be there. And so I was given the worksheet that explained what the homeowner really wanted. And so I selected all these things with my team there. And I went and did the installation and she opened her eyes and I said, here's your new bedroom. And she said she loved it and went crazy and cried. And then the next day called the producers and said that she wanted everything picked up because she really didn't like it. And they were like, what do we do? What do we do? And I was like, invite her back on the show. Let's talk about it. Like, what do you mean? Like, let's be honest about it. Not every makeover is a win. But I want to figure out what went wrong. And by the way, we have her jumping up and down screaming, I love it. So I'd really love to understand that. I don't want to embarrass her, but like, is that because we're on TV? Like, where does that come from? Mm-hmm. And we called and said, would you come back on the show and be open about, you know, open about why, why you didn't like it? And it turns out she, you know, she changed her mind about certain colors, but we didn't get it right. It was, I think, too traditional or too modern or something. It just wasn't what was in her mind's eye. And I always strive to deliver something better than what's in somebody's mind's eye because I have different access, as you guys do in the design community. We hopefully can get online and figure out the coolest option as opposed to something that everybody's seen before. But she didn't like it, so we redid it, and I was happy to redo it. I like that. You're sort of autopsying a situation or maybe you left a sponge and closed the guy up and you have to go back in and say, hey, yeah, that was my sponge. Yeah, totally. It was my Botox sponge. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so you're a Virgo. I want to know if you're an introvert or an extrovert. You know, the common understanding of introvert or extrovert is that they're both equally comfortable and capable in social situations or in the public eye. It's just the introvert needs to be alone to recharge and the extrovert actually gets their energy from being around others. Yeah, I hate being alone. Really? I can't do it. Yeah, I don't like it. Not for me. Like my mother's always like, why don't you go to dinner by yourself and bring a book? I'm like, oh my God, that's like that scene from Sex in the City. I would kill myself. <laughs> go to a movie by yourself. I'm like, no, thanks. I'll stay home and watch Bravo. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm definitely extrovert. I love the energy of other people. I love feeding off of other people. I love learning things and seeing things differently. And, you know, which is good news because I have a two and a half year old. So I'm literally never alone. Poor thing. Yeah, I don't think it's going to get any easier for you either. No, it for sure isn't. And she's like super bossy. 
Oh, yeah. Oh, you're totally in for it. <laughs> Our only fundamental goal is to, like, not raise somebody who's a bad person and, like, get out of her way to be the person that she's meant to be because I believe that everybody's meant to be something. But I, I just, like, you know, she's brutal. She's like, no, not, not you, daddy, other daddy. <laughs> I'm not surprised you attracted another strong woman into your life, though. I mean, that oh, makes I know. sense. That, like, no shocker there. She literally <laughs> looked at me yesterday morning. I came downstairs, and she was having her breakfast, and she looked at me, and she said, I know, love you. And I was like, great, Poppy. That's Aww. so wonderful. Why? Why don't you love Daddy? And she goes, so you be sad, and so you cry. I was like, wow. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's very manipulative. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's what, that's what's happening in our home. <laughs> I don't know what's happening in anybody else's house, but that's what that's what happens in our house over pancakes. Oh well, what kind of dad are you, and how has fatherhood changed who you are? I am an open dad. I am open to learning from her. Mm. I'm open to learning from. My parents, I'm open to learning from my husband, and I am very loving, very silly, very, very active, and I think I just want our daughter to know that she will always have a home here, no matter who she is, no matter what she does, no matter where life takes her and what she you know, becomes passionate about or chooses to do, she will always be welcome here. And I think that that is sort of the central issue for me as a dad is, you know, we love you wholeheartedly. Whatever it is that your journey will be, we're just here to support it. And obviously, you're going to bump up against our rules and you're going to bump up against what, as your parents, we want the values there. We want the education there. We want you to contribute. But beyond that, being a good person, having courage and be kind, being kind. That's a quote from Cinderella. Those are the only things that, you know, that matter in this house. Unconditional love. It's the best. That's it. That's yeah. it. A long time ago, Jeremiah, there's a woman named Brene Brown, who's a clinical researcher from the University of Houston, who wrote a family manifesto for her own family, but published it in one of her books as a means to get people thinking about what their own family's manifestos could be. Mm-hmm. And the central sort of messaging for her own family was, and I thought this was so beautiful and we have it framed in Poppy's nursery. She said, I'll let you see me fail because by watching me fail and recover, you'll understand that we're not supposed to be perfect and that that's a part of life. And I'll let you through that education, through seeing your parents as people who are fallible and who make mistakes and who own those mistakes I will hope that that will help you contribute to the world in a way that makes you a better person. You know, I think that that's also really important because Poppy's growing up sort of in the media. She was on our our show. Um, She's been on magazine covers. She's two years old. We're both in the media. And, you know, it's important to have some strong, strong lessons come out of the, the home, especially when you're living in Los Angeles and you're exposed to all that stuff. That's beautiful. That's the goal. And a Dairy Queen every once in a while. She'll get that too. (laughs) Let's talk about your next phase and the future. You just wrapped the first season of your new show, Nate and Jeremiah by Design, which is on TLC. Could you just talk a little bit about the show, how it came about and what we can expect? Yeah, we are in the show, obviously, and chose to have our family represented in the show. 
honestly and openly, obviously, but it was really an interesting thing. And it remains an interesting thing. We're in negotiations for season two. You know, the first exercise for Jeremiah and me to work together professionally and publicly, and neither one of us knew how that was going to go because we're married and married people fight over like the sounds other people make when they chew. That's yes. Jeremiah. He doesn't <laughs> like how I chew food. Um, to, you know, who doesn't pick up their clothes on the floor. That's me who doesn't like how Jeremiah leaves his laundry everywhere. You take a, a relationship. We've been together five years. You take a relationship, a, a marriage, new parents, all of that stuff, and you throw TV cameras into the mix. We were really worried that it would be difficult for us. But something in both of us told us that we should do this show that we should combine our superpowers in terms of listening and caring and creativity, and we should apply those to strangers and allow people to watch that process. I love doing it. He loved doing it. We definitely had our moments where we like didn't speak for three hours or whatever, <laughs> but we managed to make it through. Poppy thought it was normal to like wake up from her nap and have like a 30-person camera crew in her kitchen, which is a little <laughs> terrifying when you kind of break that down. She's like, yeah, that's what happens. There's guys with microphones in my house. And we're like, right. <laughs> well, parents of the year, here we come. <laughs> but we were, you know, we really enjoyed the process. We loved working um, uh, here in California together. And for us, you know, in the end, what's better than being with the person that you love and leaving the house? And we were so lucky and are so lucky to be able to go do that together because, you know, so many people don't see each other from, eight in the morning till sometimes eight o'clock at night. And we, you know, we're sitting in a trailer, you know, eating pizza and picking tile and laughing. Yeah. It was a great experience for us. It did really resonate with the viewers and we really did, I think, make a difference in these eight homes that we did in season one. And we're excited about the potential to do more. I have to ask, like, are there things that you design things that you don't agree on? Or are there things that he does oh, yeah. better that, you know, you don't do as well and you kind of combine your superpowers? Yeah, I'm wildly talented and he is not. <laughs> so, you know, I think that as long as everybody just is really clear on that and, you know, has the visual, any idea that anyone ever sees that they love was me. And anything yeah. that they're just kind of one eyebrow up was clearly him. Um, no, we, we, we don't fight about design. It's really interesting. It's, it's a, it's a, it's so ingrained in our life. It's what we do on the weekends. We're at flea markets and, and furniture stores and, and poppies with us. And, you know, we love, 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 both of us love equally what we do. And so we instinctually just made that like a safe zone. Like, I can't tell him I don't like his haircut, but I can tell him I don't like his sofa selection. And if I say I don't like his haircut, it starts shit. If I say I don't like the sofa, he's like, well, then what about this one? And oh, vice versa. Yeah. So, you know, it's kind of a safe zone for us. We don't have the same style. We have similar style. We just use things differently and see laying out rooms differently. I'm much more tied to, like, classic sort of tried and true questions of, floor plans and layouts and scale. And he's like, why, why does the rug have to be centered under that? Why can't it be at an angle? And I'm like an angle. <laughs> oh my God, lost your mind. That's the worst idea <laughs> in the world. And it will roll it out. And I'll be like, Oh, I would have literally never done that. And I love what that looks like. Happened in our bathroom last night. We were rolling out a rug and I was like moving this table that's in the middle of our bathroom. And he was like, why are you moving the table? I'm like, 
so the rug can go underneath it. He's like, I don't want the rug underneath it. I want it under here. I'm like, well, that's going to look like hell. And then he rolled it out and I was like, oh, cool. Younger. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> so assuming you personally can't stop, won't stop. What's the uh, furthest, highest, most maximist goal you can see for yourself in this lifetime? Um, I think it would be to have more kids and, and be a good parent. I think, you know, I love the opportunities that I've had. I'm really grateful for what I'm able to do and the companies that I work with and the people that I've met. And it's not like, oh, I really, you know, once I have an airplane and a boat and 10 homes, I'll be fine and sated. I don't really live my life like that. I'm grateful that new and cool and interesting opportunities keep coming up and that I have people around me to help identify them. But I, I'm really kind of turning into a bit of a homebody. Yeah, well, when when Poppy, the most meaningful thing you can imagine, yeah, is like, there at home. It's like, listen, I just want to make sure that, you know, those gross, squeezable yogurt packs are still in the refrigerator. <laughs> so I'm going to keep working, but, you know, because we can't run out of those. Or Costco wipes, because that would be bad. Above and beyond that, I'm happy. I spend more time now at 45 looking back on everything and thinking about all the things that I've learned and all the places I've been and all the, 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 the homes that I've done. And I, and I'm, I'm satisfied. I think what I love though is new and different opportunities. I'm the design ambassador for celebrity cruises as a new class of ships that hasn't been unveiled yet called the edge. I'm helping to curate experiences for people. It's all design related. It's really fascinating. I just, signed up with the shade store and did a collection of printed roller shades that we actually hand blocked in my office in Chicago for the template. You know, it's just, it's what are the opportunities that are out there that fit? I'm definitely know that I'm, that travel is, is going to remain in my future, both for work and for pleasure. But, you know, it's been really fun to, to do what I've had the chance to do. And I hope I just continue to be able to do more of the same. Well, um, you just listed a bunch of awesome projects that you have that might be coming out soon or were just released. Is there anything else you want to plug while we're chatting? The most exciting thing is that our home is being shot in two weeks. So everybody will get to see how we're living now in California and how some of the things that we've brought with us from all of these places, especially me, 20, 30 years of collecting, have found a new home here in California with our family. Oh, that is exciting. I can't wait to see that. Yeah. Thanks, you too. So where can our listeners make sure to find you on the web and social media? Instagram, at Nate Burkus, Twitter, at Nate Burkus, Facebook, obviously, and com, which we've spent the last year spending so much money on this website. I just want people to go look at it because it would make <laughs> me feel better about how expensive it was. <laughs> okay, <laughs> NateBurkus.com. I mean, tons of, tons of new content, obviously, design, uh, all design related. We launched a book club kind of of, of of reading suggestions and why, but um, just go on it because it would make everybody on my team so happy if you go on nateburkus.com. Thank you so much. I got like tenfold wiser after talking to you. So I really That's appreciate so nice. you sharing you. everything with us. That's my pleasure. Open book, our guys. Pleasure I love too. what you're doing. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye.
Nate Burkus. Check out the depth on him. It's always such a wonderful experience for me when somebody gives so openly of what they've learned mm -hmm. and he's so articulate about it that he can really express it. You know, he knows exactly what we're asking and he can go right to the heart of it. And I don't know. I just I really do feel like he shared something big with us. It was really nice. Yeah, it was. And you can tell how hard he worked. I mean, all those makeovers must be so exhausting to do and then having like TV on top of it. So he is clearly a workhorse, but like he mentioned, he's really good at delegating. And that was something that took me a long time <laughs> to figure out how to do. Yeah, delegating, it's always really tricky because it's there's this mix between like this task is not what I need to be spending my time on. So I need you to spend your time on it. And at the same time, yeah, like we can get more done if we divide and conquer. But it just I don't know. I, I struggle with it as well. And, you know, he articulated that really clearly. It's like, I'm the one who's going to stay in the middle of the night and wash the sheets and fold them this way because this is my obsession. This is not something I would put on my staff, but it needs to get done because I can't let my standard of quality drop even just a little bit for my mm -hmm. own self-worth. And it's Coretta Scott King crying out loud. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I totally appreciate how hard he's worked. I think sometimes... And this is an unfortunate side effect of being so handsome and being on TV, but people assume that you don't work hard. And I don't know why they assume that. I never assumed that about Nate because it's clear that he's working hard and because you can you can hear it and you can see it in his performances. But there's this idea that once you hit a certain stratosphere that everything's easy and it's not. And he keeps pushing himself to be a better person, a better father, a better designer. Um, a better storyteller and that energy and enthusiasm feels like a eternal spring when he was talking about it right he didn't feel jaded at all I didn't know what to expect when we were going to talk to him so it was really refreshing to hear him be so honest and what I really admired was that he wanted to know you know what went wrong with the one makeover that that was a great story because you don't really see a lot of designers going back and, and trying to you know rectify or fix something that they got wrong you do but you don't always see it on TV or yeah that's what I mean on, you don't yeah. see it like on TV. Yeah. You're not usually given the opportunity, but I mean, that's what indicates the sincerity of his mission, right? Because it's not about his ego. It's about like, hey, we missed the mark. Give us a chance to actually do something for you that is going to make you happy. And yeah, I think I think that says everything about the sincerity of his mission. And I appreciated his honesty. You think about those shows and it's crazy to think they get it right every time. That just doesn't happen in life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I really like the way he talked about parenting as well and the way he talked about his dynamic with, with Jeremiah. And, and I love that Jeremiah is the guy who can see through other people's ulterior motives. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I had that. I need a Jeremiah. <laughs> I mean, I feel like we all need someone in our life who can like fish out like who's sniffing around for, you know, something or who's legitimate. All right, that's another one. Thanks for listening, you guys. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And also, please go to our website at cleverpodcast.com. There you can sign up for our newsletter, read the show notes, and see images of Nate's work. Yeah, and don't forget to connect with us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Clever Podcasts. We love chatting with you guys. 
This episode of Clever was edited by Chris Modal of Your Studio with music by L1011. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.